Welcome back to Mystery Inc. I'm joined with Rob Dick, a bounty hunter and private investigator. Rob and I continue our conversation in this part two episode on his experience being inside the Casey Anthony home, leading up to the murder trial of her daughter, Kaylee Anthony. So the police show up to the house at that moment and take her back into custody. And they were taking her into custody because she had written four checks without a person's permission. Is that right? Yeah, she dropped Amy off at the airport to go to Puerto Rico. And she ended up with her checkbook, so she was writing checks on Amy's account. So it was her friend Amy's checkbook that she was writing checks from. So she ended up getting arrested for it. Yeah, they were on video at like Target writing checks. And that was another big moment, too, on the criminal investigation was is that when these stores have her on video buying things, she's not buying any stuff for Kaylee. There's no diapers, there's no baby food, there's no toys, snacks. She's buying beer and sunglasses. The checks that she had wrote that were bad, that was during that month before she had gotten arrested originally? Correct. Okay. That was during the original days. Okay, so when she was at the check and go, maybe that's a check that she was trying to cash, maybe, if she had four bad checks. No, when she dropped the car off, it was definitely just dropping the okay. car. Because she never went in. It's all camera. I got you. And she never went And she immediately called for a ride saying that she'd run out of gas. Mm, okay. So she ends up going back to jail because of that charge. And her parents had to pay a bond to get her out. Were you involved with that bond? No, the second bond... We were glad it happened because we were trying to figure a way out of it. In the bail bond situation, the agent or whoever's liable for it has the right to surrender that defendant back into custody. But you have to have a reason like, oh, it just bought a ticket to Mexico or another country, something. And we really didn't have a reason, but we really wanted off too because it was just getting out of control and... And Leonard's fear was is that we'd already run a sergeant into a ditch. At some point, somebody might get hurt. And, th- and there was a concern by that because people were getting bolder. The media was out there all the time. And it was just a bad deal. And so it was c- great that that happened because that allowed us to just kind of back out of it. It was probably expensive for you too as well, wasn't it? Having to deal with all of this because it's not your typical defendant. Well, we still stayed there though. Oh, okay. We were still trying to out figure it out we just didn't want to be involved in the bond part anymore you didn't want the liability of it well the liability of being with her sure. was more the concern because people something might happen so then yeah she got a second bond and at that point another bonding company worked with george and cindy and bailed her out and then she was only out for so many days after that and got rearrested again when they actually charge her. So after she gets out the second time, are you still in the house and are you still helping around the house at that point? Or were you guys all the way pulled out of the house? Yeah, we were out of the house at that point. We cut our ties with everything there. We were just trying 
as we get involved in this thing, Leonard was always very good at trying to follow up leads and talk to people. And so we were still doing that, but not for Cindy, not for Casey, not for anybody. We were just kind of trying to figure out what had happened. And I always tell people it's a weird scenario that you, in anything, any case, any situation, whatever, there's people out there that have information or saw something or know something. And for whatever reason, either they don't like law enforcement or afraid that they're going to get in trouble themselves, or they're just that don't want to take that step to go talk to someone. They don't talk to anybody. They don't talk to the detectives. They don't talk to anybody, but seeing us involved on Nancy Grace, on the local media, the people were coming to us the whole time with stuff. And just, we weren't cops. They had no fear of being arrested themselves for whatever it was. And it was kind of funny because the FBI guys that we were talking with kind of nicknamed us the octopus because we always had a hand somewhere before they were ever there. And it was just these things that, okay, here's the scenario. So there was a time when Cindy got her computer hacked during the sign frame and she made a big deal out of it because what had happened is someone had gotten into her email and someone had sent emails to her contacts trying to elicit response to see if they could figure it out. So you've got all these armchair detectives of the world watching this thing. So this person had actually got into her email, sent out messages. Cindy realized that, that someone had been in her email. She went to the FBI, threw a big fit. She wanted somebody arrested. They hacked into her email. Well, while all that's going on, we were doing our own search, which is a separate thing that we can talk about. It was a search after Texas Equus search, a big search. We did a separate search. That was when we were at the Little Econ River. Anyway, I have an individual who approaches me and we're just talking and they wanted a picture. We're hanging out for a few minutes. And one thing leads to another. This person says, oh, I'm the one that was on the news about the emails. And I said, what? Yeah, I was the one that got into her email. And I'm looking at this person. I'm like, really? Like you're a hacker, you're like some super smart secret squirrel person. They go, no, I just guessed that her password was her dog's name. And it was, that's how easy it was. And I'm like, huh? I'm like, so what'd you do? And they were like, well, I printed out these emails and I sent some emails. And I printed all this stuff out and then I got locked out when of course Cindy found out. He said, well, do you still have them? And yeah. Well, can I see them? Yeah, no problem. So, so now I have all the emails. So Leonard and I are back at the motel down the street reading these emails. At the same time, FBI has tracked the IP and have served a search warrant to the house. That person calls me, cussing me out, every name in the book, like, you set me up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The FBI is here at the house. They're serving search warrants on and on. 
Leonard over here is that he's give me the phone. He says, Is there agent so and so there? Call out. Yeah. Put him on the phone. So the FBI agent gets on the phone with Leonard. First thing out of his mouth is, Leonard, I don't have time. We're serving a search warrant. We're doing an investigation. I don't have time to talk to you right now. He goes, well, leave them alone. If you want those darn emails, we're over here reading them at the hotel. If you want to come get them, we're over here. <laughs> How in the heck do you guys have? I mean, he lost his mind. And they came over, took the emails. And it was nothing. I mean, there was nothing in the emails, nothing that pointed to anything Cindy was doing. Right. But it was things like that, because it's like, here's the FBI tracking an IP on someone who possibly hacked Cindy's email, and we have the emails. <laughs> right. And so it was always like that. It was even later when Hoover had his video or Dominic Casey and Hoover are out there looking for Kaylee pretty close to where she was found in November, weeks before she was found. And so when she was found on December 11th, Leonard and I went back out there. We were in California the day she was found, but we immediately jumped on a plane, flew back out there. And we're hanging out like everybody else is behind the yellow tape, just standing there. He get approached by him and he's like, hey, you guys are on TV. I got this video. Can you help me make some money with this video? And we're like, well, what, what is it? Let me see. So we see this crazy tape that they filmed weeks before she was found on Suburban. And Letter goes, well, let us hold on to it and think about it for a minute. And then, of course, he turned it over to the FBI. And, of course, that guy got jacked up on it and everything else. And it's like, how in the world do you guys keep showing up and finding these things before we do? But that's just something that's always been part of our lifestyle of not being law enforcement. People come and talk to you. And we're just talking. And what video were you talking about? So there was a guy that tried to insert himself into this. And it's funny because... There was all these characters in this whole thing that were always trying to insert themselves for their five minutes of fame. And I guess I'm being hypocritical as it's coming out of my mouth because it's kind of <laughs> what we did. Anyway. Not to get famous, but we did insert ourselves. Yeah. But this guy, Jim Hoover, he contacted us when he found out we were coming out. He wanted to be part of our team. He was a PI in Florida. He wanted to hang out. And we're like, nah, right now we're, we're good. We got our own people that are in our circle. Just thanks, but we'll keep your number. And it's funny because it wasn't until after that crazy scene of when Casey got out of the jail on the media shows that crazy scene of them trying to get to her and her getting into the car. Hoover is standing right by our car with his hands folded across him like he's part of the Secret Service, like he's part of our team, like the guard. I didn't even know he was there that day. And he eventually works his way in and helps buy us for a while and then eventually works his way into Cindy and George. Well, while he was with Baez, him and Dominic Casey, another PI, they go out to Spurvin Drive and Dominic Casey says, following a psychic tip that he got, but they're filming Hoover's filming Dominic on the phone talking to somebody, basically making statements, well, she should be right here. I see this. I see that. I don't see her. It should be right here. And there's a videotape. And this is weeks before she's found. So it's kind of controversial as to why are you in the 
kind of exact wrong place of where the body was recovered weeks before she was found. How did you get there? Why are you there? Why out of all of Orlando are you on that street filming this? And then later, when she's found, Hoover's trying to sell the tape, basically trying to make money off of it, of, look, we were there where she was found weeks before. Right. None of that ever happened. But. Of course, much later on, there was some accusations between Casey and her attorney. Did you ever witness any weird interactions between them? No. I mean, they were always flirty. But I took that as that's Casey. I mean, she was that, that way with me. She was that way with him. She was that way with Leonard till Leonard pissed her off. Leonard, that's another, another one that happened in the house. She ended up getting pissed at him. And then we had to play, play the whole good cop, bad cop, where Leonard had to pull out a little bit. And I still stayed as the nice guy because he really pissed her off. There was a time where I'm not exactly sure what day it was. It had been like the fourth or fifth day. It's during the day, and we're all in the house, and Casey comes out, she's sitting down, and Leonard goes, okay, I need to talk to you. And he just, no BS. I want to hear what happened, where she's at, kind of like we did that story I told you with this other mother. And he's just nailing her. I've heard all of what you said. It's all lies. So I want the truth. You're only out of custody because of me. And you're going to tell me what happened. And she just blew up. I have nothing to say to you and you can leave my house. I don't need to talk to you. I mean, she just threw her attitude and was pissed. And that's the way she is, is that I kind of why to me, it's so easy to see why she went to, down that road with George. She doesn't get her way and you don't back her. Oh, screw you. I'm going to throw everything I got at you. And that's exactly what she did with him, too. So Leonard was kind of out of it at that point. I also wonder, while you were there in the house and while she was in your presence, were there other times where you would witness her lie about things and maybe it was sometimes when you would witness her lie about things that she didn't really need to lie about no it, it was more just the lies that we already knew weren't true the lies about her going to full sale working on her degree and then all this happened and of course none of that was true so she would talk about those things in your presence and you knew that that wasn't true yeah well, just like the nanny, the Zenaida, she was stuck on the name Zenaida, as she said it, Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez. She always says this weird thing of three names, like Jeffrey Michael Hopkins. Most people don't do that. And I don't know if that's a tick that helps you remember your lie or what, but it's like she says it in a weird way. And so we had talked about things of, well, where could we find her to help? your story basically and, and she said well that's what the cops they they screwed up because they didn't look in the right place i said she was from new york but she's wasn't born in new york it's just like she keeps changing these little lies and there was a thing where a friend of hers keo marie torres which was a legitimate friend a real one came out and sold a story to people magazine about how 
Casey and her and some other friends used to bury their pets down off of Suburban Drive and all that. This is early on. This is before Kaylee was ever found there. And immediately she was asking me to try to dig up dirt on her. That Can you find anything about her? Because she lies all the time and she sold the story. She doesn't know anything about anything. Of course, hindsight now, it's like, wow, you really didn't want anything around that street. She was very adamant about trying to discredit her in her story back then. So I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. So can you tell me about it? Yeah, Keo Marie Torres was a girlfriend of hers that they had gone to school together down there and hanging out as young kids. They used to play down there in that same area where Kaylee was found. And she told law enforcement and then also to People Magazine that they used to bury their hamster down there, like little pets. And they would have a whole little funeral and put them in a box and they would all say a prayer and then bury them. And that was a thought of, well, maybe that had happened to Kaylee. So law enforcement went out there and searched behind the school. It wasn't the exact same area, though, where Kaylee ended up being found, but it was on Suburban. And I don't know if there was a fear with Casey at that time frame that they could stumble upon her or... Maybe they'll do a search out there in the area. Right. Yeah. But she was upset about that, that this girl had gone out and wanted to sell a story off of, according to her, lies. Was that the only person that she knew that went to the media? I feel like there were others, her friends. Yeah, but that was the only one that she wanted to discredit. Sure. And like I say, sitting here today, after all we know now, it makes sense. Back then it didn't. It was just, what's the big deal? Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah, now that you see the huge red flag waving. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was several of them. <laughs> yeah, that old saying, hindsight's twenty twenty. But, of course, now everybody comes out and says, I knew it. Because one of her first video talks with her parents, she says she feels in her heart Kaylee's close to home. And, oh, we knew it was, she was, well, I mean, that's like law enforcement would always say, too, that most killers put the body somewhere close to home, close to work, close to what they're used to, what they know. Which is why she put it there, because that's the place where she would go. So, yeah, it all makes sense. But you also have to figure there's so many different avenues to go down at that moment that who would know? Right. Until then. Yeah. And then there was another thing that, where she bragged about she wanted to make money to help search for Kaylee. And she threw out there, she goes, because Baez was actually trying to orchestrate deals at that time and that's when he got the abc deal for the pictures because he had actually gone to new york and was trying to kind of make moves with media which i i get he's trying to fund his defense basically because she's not paying him but it was kind of another thing to hear her go yeah maybe i could go on howard stern show and get some money to help find kaylee well, that probably wouldn't work because he'd just want to talk about my boobs. It's always centered back to her. Mm -hmm. it, it got really frustrating. And I think why I got so 
more vocal after her mockumentary is that that was another Casey show. And it's just, it's always about her. That's the driving force that I guess what keeps the few of us that keep this case alive of just, no, it's not about her. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about her. Could you call it a mockumentary? I just couldn't believe that a network was willing to put it out there. It's a disgrace. I think, I think that they could have put that time, energy and money into a case and family who could have really used that as a resource. But alas, they gave her a platform and a voice to spew out lies that she has dreamed of for a very long time. And unfortunately, I think because of it, a generation who did not witness the trial and did not hear the facts, if your only reference is that documentary and maybe clips of it that you might see on TikTok, you probably would walk away from it believing that she's innocent and that her parents were responsible and that she was abused and it's a shameful thing. But I want to hear from you what your experience was watching it and what you can tell us from what you witness watching it and what you can tell us your experience was from being inside the house. Well, yeah, I was frustrated because you're right. She waited just long enough, I feel, to appeal to a new generation. And then, of course, she really played the sexual abuse. You throw that card out there, you've got a certain group of people that won't touch that. Oh, well, she said it. It's got to be true. It, It frustrated me because... To me, I would think victims of sexual abuse would be pissed, kind of like stolen valor in the military. It's like you're using what's a very emotional thing to make people feel sorry for you. And it didn't happen. And that was the frustrating part, I think, to me. And again, only because I know from seeing it back then how many different lies she told in that. She tells the one lie of, oh, my dad abused me. He was abusing Kaylee. I would never leave her alone with him. No, that's not true. He left her with Jordan City all the time. The neighbors talked to us about how George would pull her around in the wagon up and down the street, and she loved it. But he loved his granddaughter. He loved spending time with her. And she contradicts herself so many times in her own scripted show. That's the problem. I mean, it's not, you you would say a bad thing about if that was characterized as investigative journalist, because it's not, it's totally scripted. There's no hard questions. It's just in the things she says and the things she slips on too. I've made several TikTok videos pointing (laughs) some of those out because you can see the anger. Like for example, during the time her child's missing, she gets that tattoo. Bella Vida. What's the beautiful life? And when she's questioned about that through the process of her trial, she says that it, she got that for Kaylee's beautiful life. 
which really doesn't make sense because you're not supposed to know she's dead yet. It's not like a memorial tattoo yet because she's still missing, but she got that for her beautiful life. And then in the mockumentary, the person who's directing the line of questioning says, you covered up that tattoo. Why did you cover that up? And then you can see the true Casey come out, that anger and that vindictive. And she goes, that was my F you to my parents. What? Where did that come from? And in reality, the F you to her parents were killing her child. That's what the F you was. And she slips like that several times in it. But again, just like you said, if you didn't know the history, the trial, the evidence, all the story of what she did back then, you would look at that as, wow, this poor girl tormented by these horrible parents. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable to watch and just to see the way that she spins things. And even during that production, she comes up with a new story for a lot of things. Which is very interesting because I feel like she's come up with different variations of lies from before she gets caught that Kaylee has gone missing. So that 30-day window when Kaylee had been missing, she has a story. Then there's the story that she weaves before she gets arrested for it. And then she has the story after she gets arrested. And then she weaves another story while she's going through the court trial. And then she weaves a different story during the mockumentary. So it's very interesting to see that she weaves all these stories. But if you enter the story at the weaving of her lie during that mockumentary, you would probably just hear that one piece of it and just be like, oh my gosh, she's such a victim. And I feel so bad yeah. for her. The world has treated her so horribly. And it's such a sad thing because it takes a lot of time to sort through all of the lies because it sounds almost like a conspiracy theory to be honest with you why would someone make up all of this stuff and get away with it and, and the, the crazy part about me is she's such a talented liar and she goes along with it and she believes it and it, just an example of it she told the police and everyone in her life that she was working at universal and the police find out that she doesn't work at universal they quickly realize this but they want to see how she reacts. So they bring her to Universal and she brings them to the employee entrance. Security tells them, oh, that supervisor doesn't work here anymore. But then she is able to talk herself through. So she ends up bringing them and the police officer through the maze of offices. And she still has this persona of, I work here. So she's passing people on the way and she's, Hey, how are you today? Hey, like, like she knows these people and the police officers are just thinking this woman is absolutely bonkers. Like she doesn't know these people. I mean, can you imagine being those people right. thinking, I have no idea who that woman is with these two police officers, but then the, she evidently turns this corner and then realizes that she's lost and she can't go on with this lie anymore because she just can't. So she just turns around and she's like, I don't really work here. Like she just falls into this belief of it so much. It's absolutely crazy for a normal person to go on with this lie, 
normally when you get caught in a lie, you just come out with it. Okay, hey, I was lying. But she, I mean, she went full on full force. I mean, you know, we all have lied. You can ask me right now and say something like, hey, do you like this shirt I'm wearing? And if I don't really like that shirt, I'm going to tell you, oh, yeah, it's a great shirt. You look great in it. And maybe you don't really look great, but it's a white lie. I want you to feel good. And those lies are okay. They're easy. But she was full on coming up with these in-depth lies and just going along with it and talking herself into believing it. And at the moment where a normal person would fall and falter and just give in, hey, I'm sorry, look, I lied. She would continue with it. It gives a new meaning to lie till you die. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's a very telling tape when you can hear the frustration in John Allen's voice and the officers that are there because A, they already knew it. He makes a comment even in her show about like, He's looking at these people. They're just kind of like waving like, yeah, okay. We don't know you. And then when they just hammer down on her, they're just like, so how does this make sense? Everything you've told us up to this point is a lie. And then she just fires back. Well, not everything. Okay. What part was it? Why are you even lying at all? Unless you have something to hide. They throw that out there. And I think the frustrating thing is for a normal person when your daughter is missing or when your loved one is missing it's very important to tell the truth because you're trying to help the authorities help you find your daughter find your loved one and bring them home so when you fabricate things the only person that you're hurting is your loved one and every moment counts so for her to weave these huge lies I think that's why the public was so outraged because they could see the only person who here is not telling the truth when her daughter is missing is the mom. And so everyone could just see through her lies. And I think that is why the public was so outraged. And that's why it became a huge case, unfortunately, because it's a unique case because we don't know it typically as the Kaylee Anthony case. Most people know it as the Casey Anthony case. And it's unique because, of course, the victim here was Kaylee Anthony, but it kind of gets overshadowed by a mom who was in the media so much because of all of the lies that she weaved. And so because of that and because she was acquitted for it and got away with it, that it kind of blew up into it's now the Casey Anthony case. So that's kind of a weird terminology for almost a uniqueness when it comes to a case like this. Yeah, I think part of what really, really frustrated me against the public, I would get so upset that all you hear is what kind of a mother wouldn't call law enforcement for 31 days. Okay, that was the main theme of like, what kind of a mother? And what used to irritate me so much and still does is that, no, you have to understand, she never called law enforcement. If Cindy hadn't called, she would have never called. That's telling right there. It's not just 31 days of being an unfit mother for not calling. She was never going to call. I related to if you're a kid, and you knock over a vase and it breaks, 
you don't run to your parents and go, hey, I just knocked that over. I broke it. That was me. But you walk by it like 20 times. Like, I didn't even know there was a vase there. I mean, that's just kind of human nature in a way. And the whole point is that she never calls. And if you listen to that last 911 from Cindy where she's raw emotion, she's crying. She's, my God, I smell like there's been a dead body in the damn car. She's just spewing raw facts that's painful. And then the dispatcher says, was she there? Put her on the phone. And you, if you listen closely, Cindy goes, Casey, they want to talk to you. And she says, I don't have anything to say to them in just a normal voice. And then she makes her, she hands her the phone and gets it on. And then she's just, yeah. I mean, there's no urgency in her voice. There's no caring. And they're drawing information out of her when she should be, if it was true that her daughter's missing, just as upset as Cynthia is. So it's more than just not calling for 31 days. She was never going to call. I mean, she was never going to call. As long as you don't bring it up, we're not going to talk about it. And it's just, she was going as long as she could go. Just like the Universal, she's going to take them as far as she could go until she's got nowhere else to go. Right. And then the mockumentary, the frustrating part about that too, is some of the things like the end of it. She's now living with her investigator. And they have that whole exchange where he's never asked her any questions about it. It's like, this is the first time I'm hearing the story. So wait a minute, you're the investigator, the lead investigator of a death penalty case, and you've never talked to your client? If that right there doesn't say that's a fake show, set up and scripted, come on. Oh, that sounds very logical, huh? I never, never would have thought of that. I mean, right. really? But again, like you say, if you hadn't known the story, you would look at it as maybe, I, I don't know, maybe genuine, maybe not. But she even contradicts herself in her own show, right. you know, for one point. So, And there's things that, again, if you didn't know the original trial, but she makes that big production of the funeral. She's never watched the funeral. For 15 years, she's never watched the funeral ever since. Well, she forgets that it was all over the media that Baez got special permission to bring a laptop so the two of them can sit and watch it in private in jail when the funeral happened. And then he even did a press conference afterwards and said he wasn't going to go into her reactions or anything, but she was very private and they watched it together. Okay, now you're in front of another camera on a network saying you've never watched it until just then and then trying to get all these fake emotions out of what you're seeing. It's just unbelievable. Another show that came out was one with Cindy and George, Casey's parents. It seemed like they felt like they needed to kind of defend themselves against the accusations that Casey was throwing around because, of course, Casey is throwing the blame onto them. In this production, it was on A&E, it seemed like George has a lot of guilt, a lot of... Uh, I don't even know the right words for it. He's dealing with a lot, I think. Dealing with a daughter who was blaming him for a lot and dealing with that, but also dealing with how do you defend yourself against accusations? How do you prove that you didn't do something? That's hard. And so I think that their only course of action that they felt that they could do was a lie detector exam. And so that's what they ultimately did. So 
I would like to hear what your reaction to that show was. I was, I was so delighted when I, when I heard about it. I mean, I think people take George in the wrong light. They look at him and say, why do you have trouble talking about this? Why can't you answer a straight question? It's not that. I mean, this happened on the stand when Baez asked him, did you ever touch your daughter? And he just kind of gets, it's that rage of like, are you kidding me? You're really going to ask me that question? She's on trial for murder. That, that is so, so far in left field. That's not true. It doesn't even dignify an answer. I mean, that's what's going through his mind. He's, he's angry, but it looks like he can't answer it because he does. He goes, he looks down and he goes, have I ever touched my daughter? And then he looks back up and smiles, no, and it's that. So what I think, just especially being with him and seeing kind of his breakdowns back then, we talked about this emotional roller coaster that nobody would want to be in those shoes. I think George is dealing with so many different things. He's dealing with the fact as a man, he feels he didn't do a good enough job for his family. As an ex-cop, he should have figured it out. He should have seen the signs. He should have seen this. He should have seen that. He should have got to the bottom of it. Possibly there's guilt of, oh my gosh, did we raise this monster? What did we do to produce this? How did this happen? There is so many things that you could think about that I'm amazed that he can get through any of it. The emotional roller coaster of what we've already talked about. Your granddaughter's dead. Now you find out your daughter's the one that killed her. And I think a lot of it, he looks within himself of what did he do? We talked about how you and I met through the serial killer case. Some of the victims' families that I've been with and talked to, there's a mom. Her daughter's missing, hasn't been found. We're sure it's one of the victims. Don't know anything about what happened other than she left. She went to DMV, she vanished. But her mom can't make it through the day without sitting and crying and trying to figure out what could she have done to prevent that from happening to her child. And she's not even related to any of what happened to her child. Here, George is in the house where it occurred. I mean, there's so many levels of just, I mean, I think he's completely destroyed. And what's really aggravating, why I was so happy that they came out and did the lie detector test, was that they didn't put themselves into this. Casey put them into this back in 2008 through 2012 in the trial. And then she beat it. She beat the system. She could be a free person. She could have come out and done a documentary on really what she did or what happened. And nothing could be done to her. But instead, she waits all these years to attack them again. I mean, that shows real evil. That's the worst part about it. And you can tell in the way she talks and the way that was put together, she is now over this time seeing George didn't lie for her. George was honest. George was trying to figure out what happened. And it was kind of like, oh, yeah? All right, well, I'll fix you. 
and then now from two Novembers ago, it was 2022 when that aired. From 2022 until just a couple weeks ago, now, all these years later, George has to defend himself now because he's getting threats. He can't go to the grocery store. People are looking at him. If you're called a molester, that's a hard shadow to get off of you. That's going to be there for a while because people are always going to wonder because mm. they've only heard her version of it. So he had no choice than to come out and do something to tell his version of it. And I mean, yeah, doing a lie detector test on TV and yeah, people are going to come out and say, well, they didn't do this test. They didn't do this test. It's a TV show. They have to condense it. It's not start to finish. They put the points out that made the most sense of the truth. And I think that was devastating to her now. I don't know. I think I told you, but we argue on Twitter all the time. Casey and I do. I mean, she's on there. She's got several different accounts and she's always on there saying things and we're going back and forth and she has been spiraling. There was a lot of pushback to the network for airing her mockumentary. There was a lot of people that said they were going to not stay subscribing to that network. They were pissed off, but no matter what in media, train wrecks a train wreck people look so there was numbers so recently she was bragging about she's now trying to figure out the actress that's going to play her and her now motion picture she's in talks with working on a movie about her again not your murdered daughter but about her and then it came out that annie was going to do the lie detector test and immediately her tooth were like yeah, I've decided not to go through with the movie. We're, we're having differences and opinions of how it should be put out. And then she went right into, I'm going to do my own lie detector test. The network is now going to give me uh, $500,000 to do my own. It'll be out in June. And she couldn't even go a day because we knew that wasn't going to happen. But she couldn't even go a day and she flipped it to, no, I've decided, screw all you. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. <laughs> she is spiraling. And that's the best karma I've seen since this whole thing started. Right. And I think there was a lot of closure for George and Cindy, hopefully, that people see that, yeah, she truly is a monster. Right. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that they, of course, both passed the lie detector exam because not only do they have to past the questioning they also get hooked up to the machine and you know, get asked all bunch of questions many times and they both passed but i think that it also gives you an idea of the emotional toll that has taken on them and i think over time cindy has realized especially when she watched clips of the mockumentary that casey did that she kind of realized that Casey's story of events couldn't have happened. So I think that Cindy's realization of what happened to her granddaughter couldn't have happened the way that she normally thought about it back then. So it was really interesting to see that realization happen during that episode. But I also noticed that with the lies that Casey says, you kind of see them evolve over time through through the trial 
and even through the mockumentary. And it's very interesting because it almost seems to me that you are her friend as long as you go along with her reality. And I mean, if you believe the lies that she puts out, you are a good person and you are all lovey-dovey. But the moment that you disagree with her, it almost seems like as she was with Padilla, your partner, she almost turns and flips on that person. And I think that I kind of see when she does that with George. And so he becomes her scapegoat during the trial, of course, where he suddenly becomes the person she blames for Casey's death. And then later during the mockumentary, he becomes, of course, still the person responsible for her death. But also what we realize is that over time, the relationship between Cindy and Casey had deteriorated, that Casey wanted the ashes from her daughter and Cindy would not give them to her because Cindy believed with time that Casey had something to do with it. So she didn't want to give the ashes to her. So her relationship with Casey wasn't good anymore. And so I think that in my observation, when Casey did her mockumentary, I think that is when, because Cindy no longer was falling into the lies that she was putting out, she was no longer in her fantasy world that Casey has created. That is when Cindy became a target because she then blames Cindy for abuse. And Cindy had to have known what George was putting her through and all of these things. So it's very interesting to see how things have evolved. And when you break down the lies that Casey says, that the moment that you start to fall out of her lies and not believe it, you become a victim of those very lies. It's very interesting to see. Well, yeah. And and what also is kind of telling too, is that you notice the timing of when she wanted the ashes right before the mockumentary mm-hmm. so she could show she's a caring person. Why didn't you want them five minutes after you were cleared? Right. Why didn't you want them back in 2012, 2013? No, you're going to wait till a month or two before you start filming because yeah, that's going to add to your show. That's going to make me more believable. I'm a caring person. It's like the picture she put up on that mockumentary. Oh, I carry these around and I hang them wherever I stay. And it's all part of that trying to make you believe in those lies. And it seems as though she's even almost, what's kind of scary, getting better at it. Understanding that you need a little bit of props to go with your lie. Some more defining moments because in 2008, she couldn't do that. She couldn't do that at all. I hate to go back, but I just thought of another one. The media was meeting with Baez, providing lunch every day for the office, trying to kind of get the first story. And Baez was trying to orchestrate that if he could before trial, so he wouldn't be able to do much. But they kept trying to buy him dinner and stuff. And one time leaving the office, she bragged about, oh, God, I'm so stuffed. We had all these wings. I think I had like 20 wings or something like that. I can't believe I ate so much. 
on the bias is constantly beating her in the head of, you gotta start acting like a grieving mother. So the very next morning, so this is coming back after lunch, the very next morning on the way over, she's kind of like, oh, I don't feel very good. And I'm like, what's the matter? She's like, yeah, I just don't feel good. Why? Getting sick or what? She goes, I just, I haven't been able to eat for a couple of days. I'm so worried. It's like, you don't even remember the day before your story about how many wings you had? I mean, she wasn't a good liar. And she was trying too hard to make things work. Where watching in the mockumentary, you almost go, wow, you've actually taken some time to try to spin this newest fourth version now and go even deeper against both George and Cindy and even Lee. She even throws her brother out there too. And, and part of that is just like you said, once you go away from believing what she's selling, she has nothing to do with you. See, Lee pulled out way back. Lee was like, when he figured it out that, oh my gosh, my sister did this, I just want to be around it. And he was out. He was gone from the picture. So now, of course, she's going to go after him too. Yeah, why don't you mention what she talks about Lee about in her documentary? Well, yeah, it's one of those things that I don't believe at all there was any abuse. So abuse victims should be pissed because what she alleges now is not only that George molested her from age 8 to 12, but then when he stopped to now molest two-year-old Kaylee, which doesn't even make sense. Pedophiles stick to a certain age group. They don't like go from an 8-year-old to 12-year-old. I mean, that's their age group. They stay there. They don't go to a two-year-old later. So that doesn't even make sense. But then Lee takes over from 12 to 15, and he does. He, he continues on where George left off. And then the most shocking one was she already had four different versions of who the father was of Kaylee. And now this time in the documentary, it was Kaylee was a product of a date rape at a party. Like she doesn't even know because she just woke up half naked. That doesn't make sense. And yeah, he never spoke about that back then. He never reported it. In fact, when she's cornered by Cindy about being pregnant, she tells Cindy, how could I be pregnant? I've never even had sex. And that's when she's like seven months pregnant. Yeah. And initially when she was pregnant, she said that the dad had to be her boyfriend at the time. And the boyfriend goes along with it. And then they end up having to do a test. And he ends up being not the father. Yeah, poor Jesse. So, Jesse, they're in a dating relationship. Things are progressing. Jesse's thinking the math doesn't work out right for Kaylee from when he met her. So, he wants to do the paternity test. But he still, even after he finds out he's not the father, still wants to marry Casey and raise Kaylee as his daughter. And he is just a great guy wanting to he the dad since nobody knows who the dad is there is no father figure he wants to take care of casey he wants to take care of kaylee that's another thing too this never really made it out into media or into the actual trial but that was another version of Baez and casey of talking about well possibly jesse took her 
because when we met with Baez, Baez showed us a card that Jesse had written to a two-year-old Kaylee on her second birthday. And basically, it was a card of a man, basically, I mean, she can't read it, she's two years old. But I think the thought process was when she gets older, she'll see that I really cared about her all these years. And in this card, he just writes, I will love you. I, I know I'm not your real father, but I will take care of you like you're my own and blah, 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 to a two-year-old child. And I'll never forget by his going, yeah, we really need to look into him because he's writing these things to a two-year-old. This doesn't sound right. And that's just part of the, let's throw everything at the wall we can to figure out who possibly could have done anything. And so there's so many different people that were destroyed by one person. Right. I would love to hear from you being on the ground there, being inside the home and talking to everyone. The prosecution laid out their own theory during the trial, what they thought happened to Kaylee. And it seemed like the jury didn't quite think that they had it right. So I'm curious for you, over time, what do you think happened to Kaylee? And how do you think it happened? Well, I think part of the problem with the prosecution is, is that I believe that there were certain people that were pushing the narrative of she killed her intentionally and the duct tape was the murder weapon. And I think that was a, a wrong road to go down because there was no way to prove it. And I think that was one of the biggest controversial things the jury had is, is that you can't come out and say the duct tape was the murder weapon. Why not lay the case out as, well, this shouldn't be there. This isn't something that should have happened. So maybe that contributes to something, but you can't just go down a, a road of black and white. And I get it. I think the prosecutor just thought that this is a slam dunk. Of course, everybody's going to see this and see that I'm right. Dr. G, who did the autopsy, she made the comments of that obviously it was a homicide. It wasn't a suicide. Little Kaylee didn't kill herself, so it's obviously at the hands of another person. And she said, I, I can't determine what or how, but I can say that a small child should not have duct tape for her nose and mouth. And then, of course, defense came back with, well, was it really there? Was it... Did it magically go from the top of the bag down to that position just because of the water where she was in or whatever? And I think that's the biggest problem. What, what I walk away with is, is that if you look at the totality of everything, it's very clear to see that there's only one person in control of Kaylee. There's nobody else. There's nobody else involved. There's only one person. There's only one person that drove around with a deceased child in their trunk. There's only one person that had access to that car the entire time. No one else did. There's only one person that lied to everybody about everything. 
And it's not one of those scenarios where people have said, oh, well, she lied because of her abuse. Well, that's not what she's lying about. She's lying to cover what she did. I mean, it's painfully obvious. And then when you say, well, okay, it could have been this accident. It could have been that accident. Well, if it's an accident, why is she searching on the computer on how to kill her months before that? And there again, using common sense. It's not George and Cindy. They weren't there. They were at work. They have alibis. Plus the fact that she's going on doing a search and then she's logging into her password-protected MySpace. Who else is doing that? There's so many things. Yes, it was a circumstantial case. You don't have a video of one person taking another person's life. But if you add all these things together, there's only one answer. There was an intentional act. Well, let's talk about that. There is one thing I want to mention. The fight the night before. Cindy and Casey had a very, I don't want to say violent, but almost kind of like a knockdown argument fight where Cindy threatened Casey the night of the Father's Day. Cindy had gone to her dad's and then went to her mom's to have dinner after that. The last video of Kaylee. Her mom confronts Cindy about Casey stealing money out of the retirement funds. That they can't do this anymore. They're on a fixed income. She's hurting them because she's taking all this money. Cindy and Kaylee go back to the house. Casey comes home from her fake job, walks in, and there's this huge fight. I spoke with the neighbor. The neighbor heard it. The neighbor confirmed this fight happened. That they're yelling and screaming that Cindy's going to take parental rights. Her and George are going to go down. They're going to fill out the paperwork. They're going to adopt Kaylee. She's an unfit mother. She's not taking care of her. And they're going to take her. So I think you've got this kind of perfect storm brewing. You've got Casey doing searches months before that. Because Kaylee's kind of being a pain in the neck, kind of being a problem to her. She can't go out and party when she wants to. There's instant messages of that before where she's, I'd love to come over, but I got this snot-nosed kid that won't go to bed. She's making all these comments. So you've got that part brewing. Now you also have to realize, too, Kaylee's at the age where her little lies are going to catch up to her. She's lying to everybody. She's having Jesse's mom watch her. Oh, I got to work. Cindy's at work. Could you watch her while I go to work? So Jesse's mom's watching her. Her friend's watching her. There's a fake Zanny because to mom, Cindy would, Casey's mom, Cindy would freak out. Oh, what are all these random people watching our granddaughter? What's going on? Oh, no, no. It's one person. It's Zanny. It's Zanny. And now Cindy's also. Hey, Kaylee, how was Zanny's the other day? And you can only imagine Kaylee's probably like, what the hell? In a child's head? I mean, because there is no Zanny, but she's talking now. So all of this is going to come crashing down. Everything's brewing to this one point. And I think the culmination happens that next day when she figures this is it. I've been working on it. I think that's why it goes kind of sideways a little bit because it wasn't planned out all the way. It was just now it had to happen. 
She's pissed. We've seen her snap. We've seen her in numerous videos. We've seen her even on her own mockumentary where she just flips that switch and that anger comes out and she's pissed. And I really think that's where that comment comes from a month later when Lee is confronting her in the bedroom and he says, well, okay, she's gone. Why didn't you go to the cops? Why didn't you talk to mom, dad, anybody? Why, why didn't you tell, why didn't you tell anybody? And she gets that little smart aleck voice and just goes, well, maybe I'm just a spiteful bitch. And that's exactly what it was. She was punishing Cindy. She was taking the one thing that meant the most to her away from her. And that's why I am a firm believer it was an intentional act that she killed her. Yeah, it seems that Casey seems like she wanted to be the center of attention. And suddenly her daughter was the center of attention for her grandparents because Casey wasn't taking care of her. But it also is very interesting, as you point out, because it doesn't surprise me that Casey would be stealing from them because she didn't really have a job. She needed money from somewhere. So when they took her ability to steal their retirement away, she took those checks, those four checks from her friend. So that's how she had money then. But yeah, I, I think that you're right on the money, actually. I think that's that sounds right. Yeah, she's losing the ability to have money. Kaylee's becoming of an age to kind of blow all her lies. She's got nowhere to go. Cindy's putting their foot down. And Casey was extremely jealous. And I think, too, and I hate that some of these things that I know torment George and Cindy, too. Like, Cindy denies that fight. She denied that fight to me up and down. Even after I confirmed it with a neighbor, I confronted Cindy about it. She's like... I don't know what you mean. We were the best we could be. We were just hanging out. Well, come on, Cindy. We know that's not true because your mom even wrote about it in an email to her friend. that You told her about this. You had even now, later, gone to counseling and the counselor said you have to put your foot down and put her out on the street if that's what it takes. All these things were happening all at once to force that. And I think, too, which was really emotional for George and Cindy is that I think they knew they had a lying daughter. They knew they had a Casey that wasn't going anywhere. They knew that she probably wasn't going to amount to much. And now they got this new baby that they're kind of raising and maybe we got a second chance. You know, you always hear grandparents spoil their grandkids more than they do their own kids because it's like a second go around. They can raise this one right any mistake we made with this one we can better it on this one and all of that i think created the perfect storm that had to happen that day and there was no going back at that point obviously once it happened but i'm saying because even her boyfriend said that they didn't even have plans that day and just out of the blue she's like hey can i come over and then she never left <laughs> she basically moved in and then she would sneak back into the house because obviously she also couldn't just pack all the bags and leave because where's she going to go? And then you've got the boyfriend too, who has feelings. And he's mentioned this, that he put it out there to her that he didn't want a girl with a child. Well, he was a young guy. He was hanging out. Yeah, we're having fun, but I don't really want a serious thing with someone who's already got a kid. He wondered if that was another factor. And I just think it's that perfect storm of everything that had to happen. 
which makes it just that much more worse that, yeah, it wasn't an accident. There is no way it could have been an accident. There was the theory of the Zanny the Nanny, Zanny being Xanax. There's been friends that said that Keely was at a party, passed out on the couch, and they thought it was odd that how could a small child sleep through all that noise and ruckus with a party didn't really make sense. George had said that she was kind of lethargic sometimes, that it was kind of a weird thing. Because, yeah, Casey was probably drugging her, and that was, could have been that. But then you have people say, well, that's probably what happened. She just drugged her too much, and she OD'd on accident. Well, she had nowhere to go. She wasn't going out partying that night. There was no need for that. And there again, that's why I, I strongly believe it was an intentional act. Right. Yeah, and the timing would make sense as well, but it happened at that exact moment. And also she ends up leaving. She tells her parents that she had a work trip to Tampa the day after the fight. She leaves, she takes Kaylee and shows up at boyfriend's apartment. Kaylee's not with her. And so is it your belief that then Kaylee would be in the trunk for that period of time until Casey ends up dumping her where they end up finding her? Yeah, but things changed over those next couple of days because she goes back to the house. And there's a time where she packages her, where she double bags her, and puts her in the other laundry bag and everything. Because obviously, and even the science proved that they believed the child was only in there for a day and a half to two days is basically what the science is saying. That otherwise fluids would have come out. You're talking about a hot trunk in Florida heat, it's already humid, it's going to accelerate decomposition. One of the lead CSI guys just wrote a book on this. He wrote a book based off of this case, just got, came out three weeks ago, and he 100% says she, she murdered her. Same thing. Again, just like we see the lies evolve, she doesn't have it all planned out. The act happens, she goes into the trunk, she goes to the boyfriends, out of sight, out of mind, forget about it. We'll go out to the video store, we'll get a couple of videos. And then, okay, now the next day, I gotta go back to the house, I gotta sneak in, get some clothes. Because again, too, a normal person wanting to get out of that scenario could have just said, you know what, you're not taking her, I'm the adult, I'm the mom, I'm gonna take half my room, stuff my car, you're never gonna see us again. Bye. But that's not what could happen because, hey, she's got nowhere to go, too. Tony wouldn't let Kaylee stay overnight at the boyfriend's. So she's got nowhere to go. And then you see on her phone logs how she's talking to Jesse again. She's talking to a couple other boyfriends. She's talking to her main guy. And we don't know those conversations, and they were never brought out. And part of that, I guess, goes to her being lucky that it took 31 days before the investigation started. Because, I mean, come on. Can you remember a conversation you had with somebody 31 days ago? Right. Probably not. So, I think at that point, she's trying to feel out her options. She's trying to figure out what's the next step. But she has a way of out of sight, out of mind as well. So, when the body's in the trunk, let's go out, we'll have a good night. We'll go get the videos, won't even think about it. Next day, okay, let's go back to the house, let's figure out what to do. And there's several different steps. And I think, too, when you talk about emotional damage with Cindy and George, 
I would hope Cindy doesn't dwell on the fact that, oh my God, I threatened her the night before she murdered her. I mean, what's that do to a person? How about the gas can incident with George? Remember the gas can incident? So Explain it to me. She, on the 23rd, she runs out of gas. Again, this is before she dumps the car. 23rd, she runs out of gas. She calls her boyfriend. They go over to the house and they break in to George's shed and steal gas cans. So he doesn't know about it yet. He's at work. The next morning, he's going to do lawn work, goes out there, sees the shed's been broken into, calls law enforcement, makes a police report about it. In the back of his mind, he's thinking, hmm, my daughter's always running out of gas. And he even knows that she's taken gas before. He knows that there's been the stain where they're pouring gas from the gas can down on her car. He knows his gas has been missing before. He can't believe she would break in and she's not even supposed to be in town. So obviously I didn't need to make a police report. He's doing the normal thing a normal person would do. Well, the next day he happens to be at home on the 24th. She has no idea. She pops in, garage comes up, he's parked inside. Oh crap, he's there. And again, she's supposed to be in like Tampa or Jacksonville. So she pops in, passes him, heads for the room, Sorry, Dad, I, just, I can't talk. I just got to get some clothes. I got to blah, blah, blah. And George is kind of like, well, wait, why are you here? Oh, well, I had to stop by and, and I needed some clothes. And, well, okay, where's Kaylee? Your mom's worried. Well, she's with Sandy. Oh, I don't have time to talk. So George, being the detective, thinks, I wonder if she's got my gas can. So he makes an excuse. Hey, I need to rotate your mom's tires. I need to get that other jack out of the trunk of your car. I've got a key. Let me just go get that. He starts heading to the car. She comes running out past him, passes him up, goes to the trunk, throws the trunk up, grabs those cans, throws the cans at him. Here's your effing gas can. Slams the trunk and hauls butt out of there. Now, I would hope that's something that George doesn't think about, that he was feet from finding his granddaughter. All these layers of emotional destruction that they're dealing with. Because, yeah. yeah, she was still in the trunk at that point. So that's just a horrible thing. And if you look at how Casey weaves these lies into place, if you could imagine, you ever have something in your fridge, like in a Tupperware container, and you open your fridge and you get a little whiff of something, but you don't really know where it's at. You're kind of like, ooh. It doesn't smell good. And you look around for it. You don't see it. You don't really smell nothing. It's not until you open that that, oh my gosh. And I think that's what the effect was in that trunk. When that happened at the moment the child was dumped, that's when she then reaffirms to her friend, yep, my dad definitely hit. There's part of a dead animal on the bottom of my car. And if you just laid that all out with their lies, it's a very simple story, but it's all circumstantial. You just have to go down that path. And I think that was the problem with the prosecution is, is they, they kind of took the shortcut. They knew it was obvious and they thought they could push that belief. And unfortunately, they couldn't get there. I asked Rob what evidence there was 
to suggest Casey had been to her parents' house. When Tony picked her up when she ran out of gas, she had food that he said wasn't bought at a store. It came from the parents' house, like freezer pops and some chicken nuggets that were in the fridge there because she was going to the house. And again, she doesn't have any money to spend. She's taking some food. She's getting a change of clothes. So she's going to the house when they're not there. Yeah. And her phone calls align with that. You can tell her calls are, are aligning with that, that she's checking. Because Jordan Cindy kind of had a little bit of a flexibility sometimes and kind of had to call to make sure they were where they were supposed to be before you could sneak in. And you could see that. See, and the other problem, too, that I, I guess people don't understand is, is that they called it cell phone pings. That's kind of a misrepresentation. So if I could just explain that for a second, because we do that with what I do when we're trying to find people. Today, you have GPS on your phone, along with cell triangulation. That's where your phone's talking to the towers. You get three towers wherever it crosses. That should be pretty close. Today, if I wanted to ping your phone, I would get an exact location off maybe up to 15 feet of where your phone's sitting currently. In 2008, 31 days later, you can't get an exact location. What you get is you get the tower your phone is communicating with. So what people didn't really understand when they say, oh, well, there is a ping, there's a lat longitude of where that phone communicated. No, that's the tower. That tower, then your phone is within a mile to three miles of that tower, somewhere in there. So when it's hitting this one, where those two cross may give you a location, but nobody can say, oh, at this moment she was in her house. Because on Suburban where she dumped the child, that's still in the same area. She could have been at either one. Like when she leaves the house, according to George, oh, I saw her leave but to go to work, her and Kaylee. And then he was getting ready to go to work a little bit later. And then she could have just went down the street. Her phone never leaves the area. She wasn't at the house, but she could have just been down at Suburban at that moment. And then when he leaves and goes to work, she comes back. And how we know that happened is because then she gets on the home computer and that throws an IP address to the exact location where that computer is. So you can actually trace her routes that way. But a lot of the people that are on the sidelines taking this information don't understand it. They see a, a ping and go, oh, what's she doing way over here? Well, she's not way over there. That's where the tower is. She's within a mile to three miles of that tower. But what you can tell is that on certain days, she never left her boyfriend's apartment area. Oh, she did not sneak back into the house that day because her phone never leaves that area. It's communicating with those three towers that are around that apartment complex. Now, that doesn't mean she's sitting at the apartment. She could have told Tony the same thing. Oh, I'm going off to work or I'm going to go hang out with Kaylee for a little bit and drive around the corner. Nobody's ever going to know that. But that's what kind of made it difficult to where law enforcement couldn't just pinpoint a line like they did. Like in the Murdoch trial with GPS now, yeah, they knew where those phones were, where they were turned off, where it went down the road. I mean, you can't do that 30 days ago, back then especially. 
the day after Father's Day when Casey says that she is going to this work trip in Tampa when she shows up at her boyfriend's house. Does she bring Kaylee with her at that time? Is Cindy and George seeing her go out the door with her or are they at work at that time? Wasn't it in the morning or something? Well, no. So, I guess I kind of have my own theory on that. I don't know that George is 100% on his statement of seeing her leave that day. Because if you look at what he said, he gives a specific time based off a TV show he's watching. Okay, that's good. That makes sense. And it's a normal thing, like they're leaving for work, like they always did. Casey's dressed, got Kaylee dressed. They're going to go out the door, leave for work. They know that she's either going to drop her off at the nannies, or in this case, go on a trip or whatever. So that's kind of normal. But the way George describes what she was wearing, I have a hard time believing theory on that is because like for example if you have someone in your house that you live with can you tell me 31 days ago what they were wearing exactly right not possible not possible i bet george didn't even know what cindy was wearing that day unless you're wearing a uniform every day you don't know the clothes that she was wearing and i think where that came from is you have to remember when those statements occurred This was on the 16th of July. George is home. Law enforcement shows up. So if you remember how that 16th of July plays out, Cindy had brought Casey to the house. She's frantic, trying to figure out what happened. They had already found that car earlier that day with the smell. George is at work. Cindy called George that I got Casey and we're trying to figure out what happened to Kaylee. George calls Lee, the brother, and says, can you get over there and see what's going on? Something's going on with your mom and and your sister and maybe you can get some answers. So Lee goes there. That's when they're in the bedroom talking. That's when Cindy overhears. If you listen to that 911 tape, you can tell that's when George walks in because you can hear the conversation. George just got home when she's on that phone. Because he says, did you call the cops? And she says, I'm on the phone with them. They're supposed to be here. Which means no law enforcement was there yet. Now, law enforcement comes in. Of course, they're going to talk to Casey first. Casey's going to give a description. Here's something a lot of people that aren't in law enforcement don't understand. First thing you do on a missing person is you make contact. You find out the vital, how tall are they, how much they weigh, what are they wearing. You put that over the radio. George heard that. That's what was implanted in his memory as the last thing she was wearing. Because how else would you explain that he's going to sit down and write 31 days ago exactly what Kaylee was wearing? And that's information that they got from Casey, right? Yes, because when the officer arrives, everybody's there. The first thing the officer does in any missing person's case is goes to whoever, which would have been Casey, and says, okay, how tall is she? How much does she weigh? Let's get her age. What was she wearing? 
and he puts it over the radio so that everybody can start looking for this missing child. Even though it was 31 days ago, that's still the main focus to get it out there. And then Casey has to sit down and write her statement of what she just said. And she writes it. That's out there. You can look at that document. She writes that she left like any other day, her and Kaylee, and this is what she's wearing. And then, of course, George has to write it too. And yeah, I, I believe that George almost every day saw them leave at that same time. But to nail it down to 31 days exactly on the 16th, she was wearing this. I just think it's kind of like an implanted memory of he just heard it and then he writes it. And that's why those two match. I'm not saying George lied or tried to cover anything up. I just. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand. I just think he heard it. Yeah. yeah, he just heard it and he wrote it. And I think another thing, too, is, is that I'm sure between Cindy and him, just the way George is. I mean, George really cares for Cindy. And I know he doesn't want her to think, oh, you guys had a fight last night. Now our granddaughter's dead. He doesn't want to put her through that. And that kind of sets the focus of the last sighting of Kaylee is by George's statement. And again, right or wrong, I don't know that he can 100% say that. I'd like to thank Rob for joining me for this discussion on his experience working the Anthony case. If you'd like a deeper dive into the case, Wendy and I are working with Rob on a series on foul play, where we will include audio recordings and other details to create a more in-depth look at what was happening. A link to Rob's website is in the episode description. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 